0: Uh, you to on oh, wow. I yeah, guess that's uh, good. So rumor is, is that we're alive, is what you're right. trying to say. Okay, that's fantastic. Yay. There is some doubt in my case. Uh, we, this is uh, a special Mother's Day sermon, because oh. it's Mother's Day, and we always do special sermons on these kinds of days, and so, uh-huh. or at least we say we do. So it's May the ninth, two thousand twenty-one. Oops, I got to get off that spot right there. Uh, lecture discussion number one thirty-seven on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, First Kings thirteen, Second Kings twenty-three. A little Micah thrown in today. So we, uh, I could, as I said, just list every book in the Bible usually every Sunday. We have letters to read because of the national holiday, right? Uh, which we call uh, Cinco de Stivo. And we know that Cinco de Stevo, uh, which was what day was it? Was it Thursday? Wednesday. Wednesday. I can't remember. There's so much festivity. I, I get lost in all of that. But there is a, it's a three day festival, as you know. We have a Cinco de Stevo Eve where a lot of people open presents. And of course there's Cinco de Stevo and then there is the after- aftermath, post Cinco de Stevo. But mostly people, just like Christmas, uh, open presents on the actual day. But I got lots of mail. Le- I got so many letters, I can't even begin to tell you. And not all of them were about my ridiculous idea of Cinco de Stivo, but uh, I got some wonderful mail uh, that is astonishing. And I, and every time I get them, I, I'm stunned by the level of scholarship that comes in here. It's just amazing. I also got a Cinco de Stevo. Uh, I don't know what to describe it, but it's participatory, and you and, uh, and uh, Terry were going to have to participate when I get to that in a second. Okay, so let me just read a couple of these, the more the, the more humorous ones, but again, I got letters from well, Mark from Texas. He's got a terrific uh, concept that he wants to investigate, and I've done a little bit of it before, and, but, so it's fantastically interesting in my opinion, a lot of math. So we'll get to that. And of course, I'll read some of this here now. And this is from Kurt. And Kurt said, Steve, you got more fan mail for your birthday. Cinco de Stevo. I just watched the video from May the 2nd, and my first impression was where the heck did Steve go? (laughs) (laughs) Or at least most of him, the parts that melted away. I was kind of surprised at how different you look. I don't know that he's complimenting me here, but uh, I'll move on. You are literally half the man you used to be. But it looks good, and it's his way of trying to be nice. And you sound good, so therefore I'm sure that you are good. I'm not so sure I am good, but uh, we're hanging in there. Let's keep it that way for a while. Kurt. And so um, he sent me this because there was a letter. Let me make sure, yes. A letter that that came from a gentleman in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Dear Pastor Cronister, this is Jacob uh, from Court Lane, calling to wish you a happy birthday. With 56 churches now, half my neighbors are pastors, current or retired. Other half are retired police officers from Babylon. I am neither. I teach K through 12, special ed, and drive the local school bus. I make careful notes on your unique and effective teaching style and attempt to channel your genius. <laughs> You're a genius during uninspired moments. It works sometimes. <laughs> and boy, that, uh, that's fantastically accurate as an assessment of me. I have initiated several pastors and doctors of apologetics to your lecture series. And you have many fans in Coeur d'Alene. So I'm thinking about moving to Coeur d'Alene now. I mean, you've got to be kidding. I, I've, um, I've not had very many pastors or doctors of apologetics. Uh, be fans of mine by any means. Uh, I, our prayers are with you for your health and comfort. Hopefully, you will be up to baptizing me in some chilly Alaskan water as I'm planning a trip up there with my boy this summer. God bless you, and please keep up with your unique and inspiring lectures. I try to catch every one. And Jacob, that's really amazing. I appreciate it. Now, here we here we go. I don't even know what to say about this. And when I got it, I. I'm I just looked at it and I said, I'm stunned by... This is somebody who ought to be uh, writing for the Babylon Bee and not sending me letters. But here we go. Dear Pastor Monocular, formerly corpulent male. As you know, that is a euphemism for one-eyed fat man, right? Just wanted to thank you again for making me think a little more deeply. I'm listening intently to the current series, which is brilliant. I mean... I'm sure it is. I'm making this appraisal by the number of lectures it's taking you to explain it. (laughs) I'm nodding my head so my wife thinks I understand it. I recently tried to drive away with the fuel dispenser still in the receptacle, so she's already getting nervous about my ability to provide for her future, and I don't want to add spiritual stupidity to my growing list of failures. Between you and me, and whoever is reading this email to you, (laughs) it's nebulous, but slowly crystallizing. Ah... as an, impet- as an impetus for my notes, something you said caused a log jam to break up and something else in uh, something else I was stuck on. I am sure I'm the only digital cliffside to think about other things while you're teaching. And then he gives examples. Nice lava lamp. Where is the lava lamp now? I don't know where it is. Oh it's over here isn't it? And it's on. so we turned that on and then Lori did. Nice lava lamp. Why does it look like there are two books missing from the second shelf? You can see we've made an adjustment over there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are they? Why is it that I can see Terry's reflection in the TV screens, but not Dave's? Oh, oh, Dave. <laughs> the conspiracy deepens. <laughs> um, and then he goes on to ask some really interesting questions that I'll cover in a couple of weeks. This is Luke from, uh, Ohio. Finally, you dislodged me from my quagmire-ness. And he's very proud that he added "nest" to Quiet Quagmire. It was when you mentioned Jennifer's regret question. Christ weeps, Christ weeps. And he goes on, why isn't that on the list? And he, and I, I'm not, I'm saving that for later. Uh, But he goes on to say, now I know where I am. I only have two green squares lined up in my Rubik's Cube, but it's absolutely thrilling. So please don't take it out of my hand yet. I just wanted you to know how you have affected me. Yes, I was already weird, but I think that with your help, I'm doing weird better. File that under T-shirt for tea ideas. Okay, and then I got a song. Ah, so here it goes and you guys have to participate. I will do the rapping part because I'm not a singer and you will have to sing. It's a Cinco de Stevo carol. Deck the halls with 5-8 plywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fa la 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 la. Okay. Join in feasts of really bland food. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Gather around the dry erase board. while we learn about the good Lord. (laughs) Cliff Snyder's lister is going (laughs) to list heterochronic parabiosis. (laughs) Sound the trumpet and pluck the banjo. (laughs) I'm a worm inside a yo-yo. Your turn. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have to something. Uh, physics, math, and paradoxes. <laughs> Putting marks in little boxes. <laughs> Bosons and dodecairons. Okay. <laughs> You've cast more stones than the Sanhedrin. So. Oh, and that's how it. <laughs> so now I have a. I have a Christmas carol to go along with my Cinco de Stivo. And, of course, again, there's a great relationship in gift-giving, if nothing else. Okay, enough of that. I've wasted enough time. I've left this on the board on purpose. I've got to erase it today. So those of you who came in are coming in to this particular uh, subject today, this is the substrate or the foundation for what we are doing today. I left it there so that you could could see it. Some of you will write it down, and I'll raise it here in a minute. Okay, we by me, by we, I mean me, Uh, I'm all over the place uh, in this subject. Pretty much a circular, nomadic approach to the topic of the fall of the angelic host, which is what this is. And you may remember, that was the essence or the nucleus of Valerie from Naples, Florida. Question number three. So, Valerie, we're still with you here. also, it goes into the unnamed Anna. They're actually the same question. And whenever the collapse of the one third is a is the discourse, which is what we're doing. The collapse or the desertion of the one third. Ultimately, we find ourselves taking into account the veil of the tabernacle, because those two are intermeshed, and the entirety of the symbols of the tabernacle uh, also got to be included, because there's so much symbolism in the tabernacle, so much meaning and I submit that it is without any controversy that the design of the tabernacle and all the symbolism that is there also encompasses the angelic state, specifically the leaving of the first estate in Jude 6. I'm going to start erasing this now because I have things to put up here. So what did I just say? I said when you look at the symbolism of the tabernacle, which is extraordinary, all the elements that are there, all the issues the instructions that God gave Moses and the artisans, uh, I believe that that has a direct relationship. It doesn't necessarily, well, it has a direct relationship, but it does include Jude 6. So that's what I'm saying. So that, of course, Jude 6 is the leaving of the first estate. Uh, by the angels of Satan. Now, most people would say, what are you talking about? How do you get Jude 6 into the tabernacle? Isn't the veil uh, uh, really going to Genesis 3.24? That's what they think. And they're not wrong. The veil is going to Genesis 3.24. It's a 3.24 attribution, but not solely... Don't stop there. You haven't even got started. If you put it to Genesis 3:24, congratulations, that's wonderful. But if you stop there, then uh, that's, I think, too shallow of a position. Okay, I, I need to. I think it's an imperative now to just divert off of this subject just a little bit before I keep going. When I said the one third collapsed, I might not have said it, but I didn't say fall. Did you notice that? The fall of the one third. I said they. I believe they collapsed. I will call it an exodus. Um, I, I believe that that term, any any of those terms, are more accurate than fall. And here's some of the reasons why. Jude six said said that they left, and that left. That's the Greek word for left. oikete rion. Oi, oikete rion. I'm not very good with my pronunciations of Greek forms. So it says that that's what they say. Again, that's the word that is translated left. And some translations don't say, uh, abode is in here. Uh, Dwelling, you're going to see those words. estate, And, and the Greek word here for abode or dwelling, it has two capabilities the oiketerion. At 2 Corinthians 5 1 through 4, for example. I'm going put that on there for you guys who want to look. Okay. Uh, there's an implication not of a dwelling or an abode or an estate, but actually of a body. And you're familiar with this verse. So uh, I'll give it to you. For while we are still in this tent, that's the same word. Oike. Uh, Oike while for we are still in this tent, we still groan. Same word. That is Jude 6, abode-dwelling state. And that greatly complicates the exegesis, the analysis now. The embracement of 2 Corinthians 5, 1-4 through 4 with Jude 6 then places both of those at Genesis 6. These guys are all going to Genesis 6. And that is great difficulty. how does 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4 impact Genesis 6, if it does? Uh, And prepare for, when you start to study the subject, prepare for an onslaught of opinions. And some are extravagant. But at least they are trying to figure out how how to compact, or if you will, how to coordinate Jude 6, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4, and Genesis 6. As you know, the penalty for the angels of Jude 6 leaving their abode or their dwelling or their estate. And if you put the word body in there, you can see how dramatically it's going to be changed. It's fantastically changed. So how do you deal with this subject is all I'm asking for today. We'll go through it as we go. But uh, whatever they did, God has reserved for those who left uh, everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Obviously, God intervened here and he put them into a prison, not the abyss. Do not confuse the abyss with the prison of the Jude uh, 6 abdicators, if you wish to think of them that way. And certainly, again, Jude 6 and Genesis 6, we get that. Those are absolutely yoked. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4 becomes a little bit more mysterious. So I'm going to leave it off for now. Okay, I'll put it in as a dotted line. But definitely has to be developed and has to be considered, incorporated. Maybe, maybe not. But we'll get to that next week. Remember Genesis 6, all flesh was contaminated. Genesis uh, five twelve, All flesh was corrupted. And the six, with the exception of Noah, and the six of the seven on the ark with Noah. Note that I excluded Ham's wife from that, because obviously someone was contaminated on that ark. And the only indication, because of the cursing of Canaan, the grandson of Noah through Ham, we, most people, most scholars have concluded that that was Ham's wife who provided that contamination. The earth was being buried in water. Genesis 6 right and so we that put us back to the Genesis 1 2 so I have Genesis 1 uh, 6 and Genesis 1 2 two times already now the earth is in water completely submerged by water and we haven't got through six chapters of Genesis so uh, re, so I have the, the original water state of Genesis 1 2 and now I have the Genesis 1-6 replication of that that state returning to that state And the only difference, of course, is the sun and moon were providing light partially for Noah. But in the, in the debris that was, we had volcanic eruptions, we have fountains exploding up forward, uh, upward into the atmosphere, the the possibility that the sun was obscured is pretty high. And the wickedness was extraordinary. It was great, Genesis 6-5. Every intent of the thoughts of mankind was only evil continually. That is a powerful statement. Do not underestimate the level of evil that's being described in Genesis 6-5. I doubt that we have any idea. We can't even imagine it. There's nothing that compares. The thoughts, every intent of the thoughts of mankind was only evil continually. Only evil. We don't live in a condition like that. No one has ever lived in a condition like that except the pre-flood world. And it traces to the angels of Satan... Those Jude 6 angels, choosing depravity, and mankind is complicit, willingly so, in Genesis 6. The daughters of men, sons of God. All of that traces to Jude 6. And it begins from there, if you want to go back and keep tracing it, with the believing of the Ezekiel 28.16, the abundance of your traffic the lie of satan but it's obvious to me that subsequently the lie of satan is no longer relevant in other words it ebbs away what i mean by that is a conclusion i've long held the evidence being the gen- revelation 16:2 Scene two comes into play because it gives us real insight. That's the first bowl judgment of the seven bowls. The final seven plagues of the tribulation is the seven bowls, and they come out of the seventh trumpet. So the seventh trumpet blows. I wish I had a trumpet. Oh, I do. Uh, it's packed away, though, right? No, it's not. It's accessible. <laughs> but if I blow it, the neighbors all come out into the street screaming. So it, it's, not, it's not a good idea, to say the least. But 16.2, that's the first of the seven bowl judgments that come out of the seventh trumpet. And the seven bowls, those are the final seven plagues of the tribulation. And it starts out with... it. People take a mark, they put it on their right hand or on their forehead, and they believe that mark is incredibly valuable to them. And God immediately uh, turns it into a loathsome, stinking, oozing, foul sore. So everyone that has that mark that they think is so valuable, realize immediately that that mark is completely corrupted. He reveals what it is. Revelation 14, 9 through 10 is in concert with Revelation 16, 2. Those who have taken that mark that becomes that uh, foul-smelling boil, which takes you to Job, right? The boils of Job, we talked about that recently. Those who take the mark of the beast, the sign of worship, they're going to have that horrifying sore, and they shall drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength. That's what the Bible says. The point being, do you need to go somewhere, Dave? If he does, he if you will. Go Got you. You know where it is, right? Okay. Those who take the mark of the beast, the sign of worship, they shall drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength. So this is a serious offense, taking that mark. The point being, yea, a point, the mark of the Satan man is irreversible. When you have it, and I've said this many times, probably recently, when you have it, when you willingly so take this mark, you will perish. There is no opportunity Otherwise, their torment ascends forever and ever, the Bible says. Another point, yea, another point. The act is a knowingly, intentional, there's no one who inadvertently, innocently accepts the mark of the beast. Everyone who does so, does so because they want it. And they know all the evidence. It's a calculatingly exchange of the truth of God for the lie, Romans 1.25. The truth of God is Christ himself, John 4.6. So they're rejecting Christ. They know they're doing it. They know who he is. They know what he stands for. They know everything about as much as you can know. But they still nonetheless, they, they take the lie of the Antichrist, which is 2 Thessalonians 3 through 11. Sorry. So the lie and the truth are side by side. They know that's the truth. This is the lie. We choose the lie. And when they do, they are doomed. And they know they are doomed. And that sounds, wow, how can that be? Why would somebody willingly choose doom, destruction? But that's what they do. And it's not a new development, John 15, uh, 18 through 19. They reject, they're fully aware of God's grace and mercy in the person of Christ. And they reject Christ. They despise Christ. They hate Christ nonetheless. And he says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And God himself in the flesh, Jesus God, said those words. Christ knows the world hates him, and he knows why the world will hate him, and does hate him. Because how would he know that? Because he understands what happened. Obviously, he's omniscient God. He knows what the motives are in Jude 6. So we see the motives replicated in Genesis 6, and the motives of Jude 6 replicated in Genesis 6, and also in Revelation 14. Christ knows the world hates him, though his intention is to save all who will come. And I have a note here to read Luke 12. So let's do that. Luke 12 will give us some extra reasons so that we can figure out what. What are we trying to figure out today? What's the lecture title? If we had a lecture title, which we don't, but if we ever did, Dave writes them on there, but I never uh, never do it. The title would be The Why of the Veil. And uh, what the veil means. So I guess I could put that up there. Why of the veil? And you may think that I'm talking about the veil of the tabernacle. And I am, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Luke 12:51 through 52. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? That's a rhetorical question and the answer is obviously what? No. This is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the second person of the triune Godhead. And he says, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. When I see division, where am I in the Bible? I'm at the division of light from darkness. Genesis 1, right? 1, 3 through 4. For For, for, for from now on, Five and one house will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's what Christ says. He didn't come uh, to give peace on her. He came to divide. Divide who from who? Why do I have all of this division? What decision is being made? I've developed it for you. Make the inference. All of you, say, all of you that... Uh, Come on, get some water. All about to say, the Jude 6 angels, they like hating the God of creation. They want to hate Christ. That's how they think. And it's great uh, they, they hate him and they also loathe mankind. So if you ever think you're going to be on the side of the angels that left in Jude 6 or the Antichrist for that matter, you will never be on their side. If you're somebody that is going to reject Christ, I'm speaking to the vast internet audience of four or five people. If you're one of those who think I can I can hate Christ and I'll be in good company, you will not. No. The angels despise you. They hate you and they hate him. They loathe mankind. The obvious reasons is because of Ezekiel 28. And Genesis three, the fact that Satan and the angels that were in power in Genesis and Ezekiel twenty-eight lost their control of of the mineral Eden, but that's another long story. There's great irony that associates with this, as I presented in the past, wishing for the murder of the only one who can save you from death. Uh It's insane. Mm -hmm. It's an insanity. It's rather an unproductive, counterintuitive plan. Romans one twenty eight says the haters of God, Romans one twenty nine have a debased mind. Uh, what does he mean? A corrupted, profane, vile, repro- reprobate mind. And all of those, so all of these decisions that they're making are, are consistent with the plan. In other words, I have a mind like this, then I'm going to have a plan that reflects it. And that's exactly what's happening. They hate Christ who can save them. They hate mankind who has replaced them in their view. And that, of course, is not the case. There is a dual track. That's what I'm trying to do today. The why of the veil is just like there is an Israel church. Two paths. There are two paths, humanity and angelic. And we have a tendency to say the angelic is of have no significance at all. In fact, it is... And they are for us well no that's not true they have their own individual will and um, and all of that of course applies to Jude 6 the Jude 6 angels who know the lake of fire awaits them Matthew twenty five forty one. they don't care they have their tract I have two tracts of angels just like I have two tracts of Israel and the church and I have two tracts of saved and unsaved goats and sheep all of this duality if you wish to think of it that way so the Jude 6 angels, they know the lake of fire awaits them. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. That was on the board last week. Can't put it on enough because it's very important to know that verse whenever you're talking about the why of things. They don't care. The angels uh, that fell in Jude 6, they don't care. They exchanged the, sh- uh, the short time that they're having. For an eternity of torment. And the question again. Who thinks like that? Who would make a decision like that? I'm going to take an eternity of torment over a short period. I'm sorry. I'm going to take a short period of time. uh, over to, To do whatever I want. As evil as I can be. I want this brief time of evil. As opposed to eternity. Why do they think like this? Again Romans 128, 129. Their mind has completely destroyed itself. It's a sickness. Anyway, all of that is the underlayment for the why of the veil, which is the subject. And if you suffered through lecture 136 last week and you were able to limit the periods of drool-induced lethargy, comatose state, some would say, then you might remember some of the veil questions there from that lecture. I always suppose that the answer is that no one remembers. Um, No one remembers the questions, and I presume that we get at least one new visitor every week doesn't always happen. They don't, if they come in, they don't stay very long. Hi, oops, sorry, left. Uh, so I do, but I do presume there's one new visitor who might appreciate being informed at the same level as much as I can do it to this uh, to the vast internet regular audience. And so I'm going to repeat uh, the question, or the questions for the said visitor, as I said, who's already gone. So no way. wave goodbye to you. <laughs> they already left the building, like Elvis, if only we had a building which we don't. We have a living room. Uh, It exists. Yeah. Our building is um, in a different state. How's that? Okay. I lost my track. Where am I? Veil. By veil. I do not reference the veil of the tabernacle, except that I do reference the veil of the tabernacle. And we're going to get to that as we go along here. So I'm not doing that veil. I'm doing a different veil, but it's the same veil. Does that make any sense? Good. It doesn't. What I'm calling the veil, the initial veil, is the restrictions, the impediments that have been placed between the angelic reality and the human rea- reality. As a general rule, the mortal body, your body, my body, everybody's body, the animals, we don't know about the animals. But I'm assuming the animals as well, uh, though if anyone is capable of seeing the spiritual reality, it would be the animal. As a general rule, the mortal body is unable to detect angelic activity. And however, as you know, as I said last week, 13-2 Hebrews, for example, there's exceptions, some of which, again, I shallowly addressed them in the aforementioned lecture 136. So there are exceptions. Genesis 6, Jude 6, that's the headmost. I mean, that's my number one in my most humbler opinion. Uh, some would argue for Genesis 3, 1 through 4. That would be wrong. Genesis 3, 1 through 4 is Satan and, and the woman. Um, Genesis 6 and Jude 6 is a massive breach. A, the scale and the process is difficult to even imagine. We, I'll give you an example of how big it was as we go along. No one has ever seen anything like it. How many angels fell out of the heavenly state abode dwelling our body got to include it. The word means body. Let me put body intent here. People are going to argue with me and say it does not. It does. How do I explain that? How many angels fell? Uh, I think I'll answer that question as we go along. But I'm telling you we can't comprehend it. 2 Kings 6.17 is a glimpse of the number that is involved. In other words, Elisha shows the young man, look at and they are surrounded by this incredible angelic army this of the unfallen, of the of the faithful angels. And it's but it's a significantly inferior force to Jude six and Genesis six. It's not even close. I digressed. Actually I wandered off again, didn't I? So Why is there this obstruction between the two dimensions, the two dominions, if you want to think of it that way, prefer that. When was this restraint, this obstruction, this blockage, this veil, when was it placed into operation? Why was the veil placed? What was, why this prevention? Why is it necessary to keep us from seeing the angelic realm? Notice how I said that. When and why are the two fundamentals of the issue here? In other words, when was it put and why was it put there? E- resolving evil uh, evil resolving either is pivotal pivotal information. It's called again the why of the veil. Why do we have this condition between the two dominions? What caused it? Last Sunday I said did Adam have full access. By that I mean, did Adam interact completely with the angels, both unfallen and fallen angels? Was there any restrictions on Adam? Could he see every and hear everything? Notice that I am placing the transgressions of Satan and his army of deserters to have transpired before Adam was made. Genesis 2-7. So I'm saying the fall of Satan occurs before Adam is formed. The formation of Adam which I have long concluded best harmonizes with Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, in my opinion, the most humbler of all humbler opinion, actually resolves if you put the fall of Satan and the angels before Adam is formed. And that requires that I do many things. But I think that it, uh, it absolutely is the most compliant. Could Adam see, hear, touch, feel, communicate unconditionally with the supernatural being? The evidences are affirmative. Obviously, Satan and the women were able to interact. Adam was never deceived by Satan or his angels. First Timothy 2:14. I submit that First Timothy 2:14, which conveys that that Adam was absolutely undeceivable, but that I believe it, it also is logical that he was confronted by many of those who left their estates, their tents, their abodes, their dwellings. He confronted these guys before they attack in Genesis 6. So I'm, I'm looking at the distance between Genesis 3 and Genesis 6 and going, did they attack because he fell? The answer is, yes, they did. When he fell, it's time to attack. Now, that how long they waited, what is the interval, I don't know, but the the, the relationship between not being deceived, but nonetheless falling. I, and I have had those lectures on Adam and Eve for... My whole life, my whole career, for sure, so-called career. Occam's razor methodology, I believe, uh, sides with my position. It's the most logical. It's the simplest explanation. The one that is the simplest explanation is the most likely true. It fits all the pieces, and the fact that he was interacting with all the angels, fallen and unfallen, fits all the pieces. So one should then resolve, as I said, the interval between Adam's creation and the building of the woman. How long did it take for each for Adam to name each and every animal? And how long did it take for God to say it's not good So uh, for Adam to be alone? How long was that time period there? And in that time period, do I have an opportunity for Satan and his angels to attack Adam? And would they attack Adam? They absolutely would. And what would happen? That he's not deceived. So they failed. So now we see the woman, and what do they do now? They see an opportunity again. And when both fall, now comes eventually Genesis 6. That, I think, fits all the pieces, as I just said. I know some are going to insist that Satan possessed a physical animal um, and, and held the animal captive. He used, a, he used the physical as a vehicle, controlled the mind of the animal, if you want to think of it that way. So uh, that is possible. But I don't believe it's likely. I think the text argues against it. And so does Genesis 3.15. That presents a literal seed or a literal son of Satan. Satan has an offspring. And Satan counterfeits the incarnation. He tries to make a satanic triad that would counterfeit the triune Godhead. The God-man is going to slay the Satan-man. So possession, uh, with respect to Genesis 3.15, is not possession if you want to take that position, it is a cooperative agreement. We know that the Antichrist and, and, and the Satan combine, but that's not possession. That's cooperation. It's a big difference. You can make the case all, all possession is cooperation, but with respect to how it's actually worded here, uh, I believe otherwise. Okay, so Genesis 6, Jude 6 is in direct opposition to the possessed position. In my opinion, possession does not result in gigantism. We've had, just go through the New Testament possessions. There's no Nephilim there. So possessions do not result in gigantism and Nephilimic mutation and genetic mutation and contamination, days of Noah, Luke 17. None of that happens with possession. It happens with something else. With mutation, with genetic manipulation. Okay, I'm wondering again, if Adam enjoyed unfettered contact with the entire angelic kingdom, when was the veil installed? Obviously, it had to be installed after a period of time. And I just put up there, how, how long did it go? How long did it take to name the animals? How long did it take before Eve was built? How long did it take for Adam to decide he was not good, that things were not good for him? And God to say it's not good that man should be alone. How long was that period of time? So when was the veil installed? Why was it constructed? Who did it? That last one's an easy question. We used to have a Sunday school teacher that Lori and I know every time you answered an easy question. With Jesus, Jesus, you get a skittle. Jesus skittle. Like Pavlov. So who did it? Jesus. Everyone gets a skill. What's up with 1 Corinthians 6.3? What's happening there? How can we sit in judgment of beings that we never see? Because that's what it says, right? Do you not know that we should judge angels? For what? Who's the We. Which angels? Okay, we can answer that question. Which angels do you think we're going to judge? I submit Jude 6. Genesis 6. Primarily, overwhelmingly. Um, and, and do you not know that we should judge angels? That's a rhetorical question. It assumes that we are going to judge angels. And how are we going to do that? How can we sit in judgment of beings that we never saw? What, do we get a video? When does it happen? I think our witness is compromised. If we can't see them, how can we say, well, we're not witnesses. We're going to have to believe witnessing. Some process, legal process, by which we judge these angels. What about Matthew 12, 38 through 42? The men of Nineveh saw the sign of Jonah, the resurrection of Jonah, and they're going to rise up in judgment of who? The Pharisees. But they saw Jonah, and they heard Jonah, and he resurrected in front of them. He was vomited up, and he's dead, and he rises up after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, right? And he's decomposed in corruption, as opposed to who? As opposed to Christ, who can never go to corruption. got a wonderful... Well, hi, Wendy. Wendy uh, uh, noted the other day, she sent me a letter and said, uh, the Shroud of Turin is is uh, difficult to assign to Christ. She's absolutely right because of Psalm 1610. And of course, there's other... Listen, I've studied the, uh, the Shroud of Turin. I understand all the different positions. The artistic position, that, that the blood droplets don't fit an actual the uh, event that was, is described by Scripture, the blood placement. They did. If you stab somebody, the, the, blood and the living blood and living water would do something different. Would the living blood and the living water remain on the veil? Uh, they've tried to say that there's DNA tests, and of course you're talking about it, something that could be as much as 2,000 or 750 years old, however they want to say 1,000 years, which is pretty common. Uh, X, Y chromosomes, is there a Y chromosome? See that all the time. It's all over the place. So this subject is everywhere. And I've spent a little bit of time to look at it. But Psalm 1610 brings a great deal of strength to one position. I won't give it up. Okay. The men of Nineveh saw the sign of Jonah. They saw the resurrection of Jonah. They were they're going to rise up and judge the Pharisees. So they witnessed something. The religious leaders who rejected Christ. That's the Pharisees who represented the nation of Israel. The men of Nineveh will condemn those. Because the men of Nineveh, Nineveh, men of Nineveh, how do you say that? They repented. They believed the preaching of Jonah. And the greater Jonah is Christ himself. So they had the Jonah, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, of the nation. They had the greater Jonah, God himself in the flesh. He stood before them. The evil and adulterous generation, he called them. And as the evil and adulterous generation is predisposed to do, the Pharisees abhorred, they hated, they, they literally despised their loving and merciful creator that would have saved all of them. Jesus says to them, he asks a rhetorical question, and that assumes the answer. Matthew twenty-three 33, I'm combining a bit of it. He, he says to the Pharisees, your serpents, your offsprings, your offspring of vipers, your children of the murderers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? And what, that's a rhetorical question that assumes that they cannot escape the condemnation of hell. Why did he ask them that? Is he insulting them? No. What's he doing? He's the truth. He's telling them the truth. Why is he telling them the truth? He's telling them what's going to happen to them. He's trying to save them. That's what he does. Not trying. Trying's not the right word for God. He is. Extending his hand of salvation. How many of them take his hand? Some do. I've made the case that the guy with the withered arm did. As uh, certainly Nicodemus. Eventually, Paul, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Woe to those who devour widows' houses, he said, and make long pretense prayers, who shut up the kingdom of heaven against other men. They shall receive the greatest condemnation. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. You will go into the lake of fire. That's what he is saying. The greatest or the greater condemnation. Pro tip here for the day. Stop with the long pretense prayers. How many times have we sat in a... In a worship service especially as a young boy and a guy gets up there and he prays for 30 minutes stop it it's condemned in scripture it's pretentiousness it's nonsense it's never good it's drawing attention to yourself it's pharisaical pay attention to what christ says about it anyway again i'm wandering off that's that's a rant isn't it christ completes Matthew 23, which is where I'm at right now, with this solemn truth, this fact a certainty. Remember, he's the one that writes all the names in the Lamb's Book of Life. He's the Ancient of Days. He's the Daniel 7, 9 through 10, Ancient of Days, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. He's the opener of the books. Anyone not found in the Book of Life is cast into the lake of fire. And he finishes with Matthew 23, 36. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. You are condemned, he said. It's a certainty. That is God himself as judge saying that to them face to face. I need to inject that there is a defined nonconformity in the nation of Israel. What I mean by that, there's, I have this generation of religious leaders who detested the God of life, life itself personified. They are culpable. They represented the nation. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a national sin. It's not an individual sin. A lot of people make that mistake. There exists a contrast between the national response to Christ and the individual response. The national rejection of Jesus God is wholly separate from and does not preclude individual acceptance. Many Jews believed Christ. There were multitudes of Jews that believed Christ. They ha- it happened at the, at the cross. So clearly individuals got saved. What The, the sin that is con- condemned by Christ in Matthew 23 is the national response. It's religious leaders. Christ himself, God himself, physically stood before the nation's authorities. And they refused him on the basis that he was Satan. That is the unforgivable blasphemy and it is a national sense And that many times just had to make sure everyone got it again. Okay. Have you reached a determination as to when the veil was in place, initiated? I'm going to make you a list. Okay, the list maker is on a list. It's in the Cinco de Stevo carol. So now it's in a document. So, some are obviously flawed, what I'm going to write on the list, but I do not wish to prohibit them just because they're ill-advised. They will actually provide clarity because it's a process of elimination. Elimination is a valuable tactic, so I'm going to start with this. First one on the list, did the veil... Get installed by Christ, by God, by the triune Godhead, after the taking of the fruit by the woman. Fruit, woman. B. At the taking of the fruit by Adam. Fruit, Adam. So, in other words, I've got to install this veil where humanity cannot see. or uh, Angelic. When do I put the veil up? post-trial I have a trial Adam Eve and Satan did it have at the end of that trial I have the blood coverings there so you can put That's part of the trial blood coverings do not end the trial what ends the trial the driving out does so so when did the veil get put In fact, I could put driving out down here. Let me do that. I'll separate these two. Okay. When Adam and Eve were driven out, just as a a sideline here, the garden and the unfallen cherubim were placed as gardenians. So that's when they were... And there's a flaming sword, Right. And the garden itself um, could be seen now. And there's animals still in there. So when this happens, when those guardians are there. Let me put the guardians. That's the cherubim. How many cherubim are there, do you think? There's one flaming sword and lots of cherubim. How many do you think are there? How long were they there? When did the garden get uh, get out of the condition that it is in in Genesis three, but the garden could be seen, but it couldn't be accessed accessed by man or by angel. And there are there are animals inside there, as I've said before. I want you to compare Basra, which is Michael two twelve through thirteen and Isaiah sixty three one through six. Basra is where Christ takes the remnant of Israel and He protects them. And the position is is that there's a canopy, there are wings over them, right? He puts them under his wings, and Satan can't access Israel. He can't get to them. Same thing's true about uh, the Garden of Eden at that place. So make that, that combination, if you will. I should point out the Revelation 12, the war in heaven which blocks Satan and his army from admittance is also in this vein a uh, veil. Sorry. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. How did God keep them out? He does. The great dragon was cast out, cast to earth and his angels with him. Revelation twelve seven through 9. So a wall of sorts or some kind of barrier. So I'm looking at an Eden barrier, a Basra barrier. I'm just putting them all together. And now I have a heavenly barrier. I want to know if it's the same process every time. What do you think? So again, I have this something that's preventing Satan and his angels from entering the heavenly state for the first time. First time in Satan's existence that he no longer has access to the heavenly estate. And Satan knows that the time, his time is short, Revelation 12. Well, (coughs) this is a mid-tribulational event. The fact that he has knocked out that war in heaven. Very important to know. It's in the middle of the tribulation. There's an interlude. There's a pause there, an intermission. We're going to think of it that way. Between the two, three and a half year period. So I have a three and a half. And I have a three and a half. And I have this in the middle. The middle of the tribulation. So there's a temporary cessation of judgment separating the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Because there's a sixth trumpet is right here. And here's the seventh trumpet then we go through this. And in here is the mark of the beast, right? Where you have no opportunity to remove it. You cannot you cannot retract that decision. Here you've got tremendous signs and, some, and tremendous evidences of who Christ is. Fantastic amount of salvation here. 144,000 two witnesses. I've got all kinds of things happening here. Here, no. There's a demarcation. There's a barrier here now. So I have a Three and a half year, second part, barrier as well. It goes with these three. So I have four of them. That's all I'm trying to say. The seventh trumpet contains the uh, seven bowl judgments. The first bowl of judgments, that loathsome sore, foul smelling, boil, manifests on the mark of the beast. All who wanted that mark, who desired that mark, chose the mark, and refused the extended hand of Jesus Christ, salvation from Christ, immediately have their symbol of their decision revealed to be death. A, No. When they took it, they knew. A mark that cements their fate now. It's cemented. When that becomes a boil, they can no longer be anything but condemned. That's an ominous thing. That didn't happen at the Ark of Noah. The the, the pre-flood world. I'm sorry. Yeah, the pre-flood world. Just notice that Satan is banned for today. Blocked from heaven, as are his angels. So, all uh, those who love the mark and his angels have a relationship. Okay, I'm going to keep going. How am I doing for time here? Okay. E, I think. Where is it? On E or F? I can't remember. I think yes. I'm on E. Yeah. F? Yes. Okay. I Have lake of fire. So does the lake of fire was it, did, did the veil go up before the lake of fire? Did it go up uh, at the same time as the lake of fire? Did it go up e f g h I do my math. After the lake of fire. So when did it go? Is there a relationship between the lake of fire and the and the veil? Chai Jay, I'm I'm off here somehow. Did it go on when the revolt of Jude Jude Sixth? The Noetic Flood flood? I'll go over these in just a second. The imprisonment—I spell prison. It's not easy to spell like this. You have to be a professional. That Second Peter two four is from last week. Christ goes down to visit the ones that he imprisoned. Uh, here's my favorite. Crucifixion. Did it go after the crucifixion? How about the ascension? Death of Judas. When did the veil go? And obviously, I am employing uh, overt subtleness with my list. And you might uh, object that overt subtleness is a cancellation. How can you be overt and be subtle simultaneously? That's like quantum annihilation. That's antimatter and matter. That's positrons and electrons. But I have just done it. I have overt subtleness here. So let me repeat because I erased the other part. Uh, Before the lake of fire, at the same time the lake of fire, after the lake of fire. No, I already did those. I did that. and I lost my place again. Where am I? Oh, I don't even know where I'm at. I feel like that... Never mind. I was going to make a political statement, but I won't. I sure want to really bad. After the taking of the fruit of the woman, at the t- at the taking of the fruit by Adam, in other words, the fall of the woman, the fall of Adam the trial after the trial, during the trial, uh, the blood coverings, the driving out of the garden. Um, and now we're at uh, Lake of Fire, Lake of Fire, revolt of Jude 6, no attic flood. Oh, well, there's another one in here that I left out. 120 years of Genesis 6. They come before the 120 years or after the 120 years. Of course, after the 120 years is the flood. So during, before, after is much like this. When did he do it? (sighs) But um, I have seduced. I have. This is a feint. It's a gambit. You want to think of it that way. A trick, trap, ruse, Mm -hmm. whatever. So which one of those, all of those that I listed, the ones that are missing now, but of all the ones I listed, which did you adopt? Uh, I will provide some aid for you. Maybe. Sort of. Keep in mind your preference will have to intersect with Revelation 9. Whatever you chose of all of these that are missing now, whatever you chose, you're going to have to connect it to Revelation 9. Revelation 9 gives you a great deal of information. Because the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet is what we're talking about in Revelation 9. That's a 150-day suspension of death. 150 days of no death. That connects to the noadic ark. That 150 shows up in two places, 150 days. God does not allow. No one will die for 150 days. Just think about that. There's four angels that are released. Four angels get released. Hundreds of questions right there. There's 200 million angels. Remember I told you that I would connect that to Jude 6? 200 million angels are released in Revelation 9 in the 6th trumpet. So again, how many angels is that? Think about 200 million of them. And again, do not think that they're coming out of the imprisonment. They're coming out of the abyss. So why? Obviously, the veil is not in operation at at the sixth trumpet or the fifth trumpet at all. There's no veil at all. Why not? Why does he release those angels and those 200 million? What's his reason for doing it? They kill maybe billions of people. It's an all-out war on earth between angels and men. It's unbelievable. Do not confuse the sixth trumpet with the war of the great day. Lots of people do. The 200 million. They think that's the war of the great day. It's the third world war of the tribulation. And many conflate Revelation 9 with the war of the great day. Don't make that mistake. It'll lead to confusion. Okay, that was fun. I am the fun pastor after all. The HDRP. The Answer Me That Dude. And the MFCM. MFCM. I have another title. Mm-hmm. Aliases, actually. You might think of them as aliases. All to enable my eventual escape. I say all the time, only thing I can ask for is a fast horse, twenty minute head start. Okay, the veil. The tabernacle veil. Exodus twenty six, thirty one through seven. I veil. Can't see the time. It's five o'clock. Okay. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy and the most holy. 26.33 of Exodus. That we have some understanding of. We are separated from God by sin. We require a high priest to enter for us. The high priest enters with blood. All of that's a portrayal of Christ Jesus. His second office is his high priest. He's the mediator. Consider Moses, Deuteronomy 18.50. 1850, The prophet that Christ will be like. The only one, it is said, of, of Moses, he's the only one whom the Lord saw, knew face to face. So Moses got to go through the veil, didn't he? It protects God from us, or protects us from God would be better, huh? Sorry, I said that badly. Deuteronomy 34.10. Moses had to hide his face. He had this shining face of Moses when he held the two tablets. Israel was afraid of him when that happened. For good reason. And Moses put a veil on his face. Exodus 34, 29 through 33. 2 Corinthians 313 through 18. There's a veil over the Old Testament. 2 Corinthians 3:14 says. You can't understand the Old Testament. So I have a veil there. It helps me understand veils. I took the veil off the moor. There's a veil on the Old Testament. The, the veil on the Old Testament is taken away in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3:14. Uh, when one turns to Christ, the veil is taken away. So if you know who Christ is, then you know the Old Testament is all about him. You search the scriptures, they testify of me, he said. So once you have that key, then the Old Testament veil is gone. Without Christ, the Old Testament cannot be understood. Everyone who tries to tell you, and I listen to these wonderful conservative commentators, they're all over town trying to tell me what the Old Testament is about. And it is Christless, their commentary. They have a perspective without Christ. You cannot know the Old Testament, what the Old Testament is saying, or what it means, what it's trying to convey. You cannot know without Christ. He is, the veil is taken away by Christ. Again, 2 Corinthians 3.15. So Christ is the veil and Christ rends the veil. Christ is the high priest who enters through the veil with his blood, which he also uses to cover the ark, which is also him. Starting to get it? hope so. It's all him. He is the wooden ark covered, encapsulated with gold. And wood is humanity. And it's enclosed. It's enveloped in gold. His deity, his godhood. Once you got that, you make very few mistakes about his humanity anymore. Most Bible-believing churches have some of these pieces. They fail most often, not recognizing that Christ is infinite. Omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipresence, benevolence, subordinates his perfect humanity. Notice I said perfect humanity. They have the wood over the gold. The gold's over the wood. You see the gold, the deity first. It is, an, it is an authority over the humanity. The humanity is perfect. The majority of churches today believe that Christ is weak, he's fearful, he's confused in his humanity. That's heretical idiocy. But that's a digress rant. Anyway, the final question for today is Exodus twenty-six thirty-one. The veil is woven with an artistic design of cherubim. If you ever seen any renderings of it, the veil is huge. I won't draw it because I can't. But the veil is very big. It's woven with an artistic design of cherubim. Why? It must have something to do with Genesis 3.24. First mention of cherubim is Genesis 3.24. I'm going to go back there. I can make the case that the first mention is really uh, Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel 1. But actually, it's not. So why? The easy answer is Genesis 3.24, the the guardians and the flaming sword. But that merely just gets you started. Why does God wish to remind us with the veil of the tabernacle about Genesis 3.24? Because He's putting 3.24 to the tabernacle and the veil. And Christ is the veil. He tears the veil. The veil is placed between him or between us and God. And yet, cherubim are on it. Why is the, the veil only hiding the spiritual reality? This is Terry's question. Hi, Terry. Why is the veil only hiding the spiritual reality? In other words, why... Can the watchers, 1 Peter one twelve, Daniel 4.13, 4.17, 4.23. Why can the watchers see us, but we cannot see them? Why are they hidden, hidden from us? Because they are. It's a one-way veil. They get to see us, we can't see them. They're the watchers, we don't get to watch. We're on display, but at the same time, they seem to also be on display at some point. We judge them. What is he doing? Why is he doing it? What is the point? Yea, a point. Okay.